All right, we are in Proverbs 15. Proverbs 15, and we'll read verses 1 to 17 today. Proverbs 15, beginning in verse 1, says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spouts folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. A fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, but the heart of fools are not so. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. Grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Sha'ol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men. A scoffer does not love one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. A joyful heart makes a cheerful face. But when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds, only, feeds on folly. All the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. <clears throat> Better is a dish of vegetables where love is than a fatted ox served with hatred. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for your holy word given to us, Lord, to teach us, Lord, how it is that we might be reconciled to you through the death of your Son, and Lord, then how we might live a life that is pleasing in your sight. Lord, how to discern between good and evil, and to live in a way that is pleasing to you. So, Father, we pray that you would help us today, Lord, to see this contrast, Lord, that is so clearly and distinctly made out between the righteous and the wicked. Lord, that we might reject the path of evil and, Lord, commit ourselves and walk in uprightness and truth. So, Lord, establish us in your ways and, Lord, teach us today. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, Proverbs chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? Whenever the answer is gentle, whenever we're dealing with one another, and especially if we're dealing with a contentious or a situation that has the potential for conflict or controversy, when we are reproving someone or when we're correcting someone, we should do so with a gentle answer, right? Generally speaking, in our day-to-day conversations with people, we should be filled with gentleness, with kindness, with compassion, with tenderness toward one another. And when we are gentle in this way, Right? Whenever we are saying things and we have this kind of attitude, it makes the message, it makes what we're saying more acceptable to the person. Right? If we are speaking with harshness, with severity, in a churlish way, then we are going to predispose the person against the message of what we are saying. And even if what we are saying is true, they're not going to want to listen to us, they're going to turn away from us because of the attitude, because of the harshness and severity in the person. So we don't want to put stumbling blocks in front of people to keep them from the truth. 
And when we deal with people with severity and with harshness, even if what we're saying is true, it's not going to elicit a proper response from that person, but is typically going to arouse their anger, make them mad, and then it's just going to turn into a big brawl. Okay, this is the way it generally goes. Right? When in the home, when the husband and wife are having a disagreement, and the husband or the wife responds with a sharp, with a sarcastic, with a bitter, with a harsh word, does that ever help the situation? Does that ever dissipate and win them over to your side? Has that ever happened one time in the history of the world? No, of course it doesn't. All it does is it, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire. It inflames their flesh so that now you're arousing their flesh. You're putting a stumbling block in front of them in these things. But if you respond with gentleness, with kindness, with tenderness, with compassion, then does that not often have the opposite effect? Instead of arousing their passions, it's like pouring water on a fire. It causes those things to cool. And whenever we are gentle in our approach to others, then many times they will reciprocate to us. They will respond in a like manner. The gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger so that it causes more and more sin in the person. So we need to be gentle even when we're dealing with sin, even when there's something that needs to be addressed, if we're not addressing it in the proper way, then we can be a hindrance to that person's repentance. And I do believe that this has been one of the errors or sins or defects in the ministry in the way that we've been acting over the past couple of years. Because we've had this mentality of just say what needs to be said. Right? Just say what needs to be said, just speak the truth, and it doesn't matter your tone or the way that it's said, all you need to do is just say, say what the Bible says. Well, certainly we need to say what the Bible says, but if we say that in a harsh way, in a severe way, in an arrogant and a sarcastic way, even if what we're saying is true, is anyone going to listen to us? No, they're not going to listen, they're going to run away from us. They're going to reject that message because of the jerkiness of the messenger, right? And we shouldn't be doing that and promoting that type of attitude. We need to be gentle. We need to be kind. We need to be tender. We need to be compassionate. We need to be patient in the way that we are communicating to one another. And this passage is teaching us such that when there is gentleness and composure and self-control, whenever we are answering, especially when there's the potential for disagreement, for contention, for conflict and controversy, then we are going to help foster an atmosphere in that conflict that will bring about resolution and reconciliation and proper understanding instead of throwing gas on the fire, arousing men's passions, their anger, and then just causing things to blow up and go in ways that they shouldn't go, that are not going to be helpful for anyone. Now, an example of this would be 1 Samuel 25. You get both sides of the coin here. 1 Samuel 25, verses 23 to 31, we'll read first. This would be the gentle answer. And because we're so positive, we'll start with the positive first. So we'll start with the positive. 1 Samuel 25, verse 23. 
When Abigail saw David, she hurried and dismounted from her donkey and fell on her face before David and bowed herself to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my lord, be the blame. And please let your maidservant speak to you. Listen to the words of your maidservant. Please do not let my lord pay attention to this worthless man, Nabal. For as is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. And I, your maidservant, did not see the young man of my lord whom you sent. Now therefore, my lord, as the lord lives, and as your soul lives, since the lord has restrained you from shedding blood, and from avenging yourself by your own hands, now let your enemies and those who seek evil against my lord be as Nabal. Now let this gift which your maidservant has brought to my Lord, be given to the young man who accompany my Lord. Please forgive the transgression of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord, and evil will not be found in you all your days. Should anyone rise up and pursue you and seek your life, then the life of my Lord should be bound in the bundles of the living, uh, of the living with the Lord your God, but the lives of your enemies he will sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when the Lord does for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you and appoints you ruler over Israel, this will not cause grief or a troubled heart to my Lord, both by having shed blood without cause and by my Lord having avenged himself. When the Lord deals well with my Lord, then remember your maidservant. Here, the approach of Abigail, her gentle answer, her humble approach to David dissipated his anger. His anger was aroused because of the harsh word of Nabal, but then the gentle word of Abigail caused his anger to subside so that he did not commit this sin of shedding innocent blood, which he was on his way to do. So in this way, her gentle answer kept David from sin and kept innocent blood from being shed. This is how much of an effect and how powerful a gentle, humble word can be. She approached him with humility, and when David saw this, it caused him to respond in like turn, to cease from doing what he was going to do in anger and to also have gentleness and humility himself in a, comp a composed, calm, sane mind. Now, the opposite of this would be 1 Samuel 25, verses 9 to 13. 9 to 13 says, When David's young men came, they spoke to Nabal according to all these words in David's name. Then they waited. But Nabal answered David's servants and said, Who is David and who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants today who are each breaking away from his master. Shall I then take my bread and my water and my meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to men whose origin I do not know? So David's young men retraced their way and went back, and they came and told him according to all these words. And David said to his men, Each of you gird on your sword. So each man girded his sword, and David also girded on his sword. And about 400 men went up with, behind David, while 200 stayed with the baggage. Here, up to this point, David and Nabal, though they didn't have a long-standing relationship, David did not have any angst against Nabal. He was not his enemy. He didn't want to kill him. He had actually been doing good to him. And yet when Nabal answered David in such a harsh way, in such a mean and an evil way, a bitter, severe way, it aroused in David anger that then provoked David to go and slaughter Nabal and all of the men in his household. 
So with Abigail, there's a gentle answer that turns away wrath. But in Nabal, there is a grievous word that stirs up anger. And this is what we see here. Okay, next, verse 2. Proverbs 15, verse 2. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable, but the mouth of fools spout folly. The tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Here, I don't think he means merely that knowledge is in the tongue of the wise, but it is their tongue, it is the way that they present the truth that makes it acceptable to the ears of men. That the way that we communicate and the way that we treat people and the way that we talk to them, it does have an impact on whether or not someone listens to us and whether they listen to us in a favorable way. So I do think there is a place for us to watch and to make sure that our attitude is right, that we're using the right kind of language, that our tone is not severe and harsh, but to use our tongue in such a way as to make knowledge acceptable. Yes, knowledge should be acceptable just based upon its bareness, based upon the truthfulness of the knowledge. But knowledge typically comes to us through the means of a messenger. And if the messenger is using his tongue in this harsh way, then the knowledge that he is espousing, even if it is true, is not going to be acceptable to the people. But if he is gentle and loving and kind in the way that he is among the people, then the knowledge that is coming from him will be acceptable to the ears of the people. So knowledge will win the day because of the way it is presented. Now, again, certainly we might say, well, it all depends on God, and it does depend on God. But we also have our responsibility. And in terms of talking to people, instructing people, teaching people, We need to do it in such a way that the knowledge we are presenting is acceptable to men. We don't want to put stumbling blocks to them coming to a knowledge of the truth because we are being jerks or because we are being severe and harsh in the way that we are treating them. This is what the wise man does. But the mouth of fools spout folly. They spout folly. It comes from fools, both what they say and the way that they say it just giving their mouth free reign to run, becoming arrogant, right? becoming proud, having contempt, speaking in this haughty way against others. This is what a fool does. And even if what he is saying has some semblance of truth, no one's going to listen to him because no one wants to be around these kinds of people. And this is why they are the way they are. 2 Timothy 2. 2 Timothy 2. Here the apostle teaches that the minister of God must compose himself in a proper way, in the way that he is speaking to and treating those who are under his care. 2 Timothy 2, 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So there, the bondservant of the Lord, the minister of God, should not be a quarrelsome man, a quarrelsome, pugnacious man who is constantly seeking conflict, constantly seeking to fight, to brawl, to get in these quarrels with men. 
He shouldn't be a quarrelsome meddler in that way. But rather, he needs to be kind. Kind to all. Even those who are opposing him. Right? Even those who are, who are contradicting him. He still needs to be kind to them. Right? Kind to all. Able to teach. Patient when wronged. Even when men are wronging him, he needs to be patient with them. He needs to be kind and compassionate with them. Right? And isn't this going to be the case in the church? Because is anyone going to be perfect? Of course not. So in some way or another, the people will always be uh, rejecting in some way the teaching of the minister. Because whether we're rejecting it overtly or whether we're doing it in terms of our daily struggle with sin, this will happen as we go along. And in that way, there is a wrong being committed, but the minister cannot be impatient with them, and he shouldn't be impatient with them because he himself sins against his own instruction, right? Because isn't he teaching the word of God? And does the minister perfectly do the very things that he teaches? I I can tell you by experience, he does not. He does not. My wife can confirm this as well if you want to ask her. It's never the case. The very words that we are teaching from the scriptures Yes, we want to do them, and yes, we want you to do them, but we have to be patient with one another because none of us are perfect in this life. He also says, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition so that God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. He needs to be gentle, kind, patient, compassionate with the people. Otherwise, he himself will be a stumbling block to their repentance, and to their growth and sanctification. And this shouldn't be the case. Verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. Here we are reminded that there is nothing hidden from the sight of God. God's, God's eyes are in every place, watching the evil and the good. This should be both to strike terror into us, fear, but also great comfort. Yes, God sees all things. He sees what's in our heart. He knows what's on our mind. And there is nowhere that we can go in this world where we can commit sins that are outside of the gaze of God. He sees it all. And that should cause us to fear God. To fear God, to know that everything that I am is laid open and bare before the Lord. But also, it is comforting. Because God's eyes are in every place. And He is watching over the good meaning his own people, those whom he has redeemed. And there is no evil that can befall any of us that happens outside of the will of God, outside of the watching eye of God. So no matter what comes upon us, God knows about it, God is in control of it, and he is there ready to help us in our time of need. There's nothing that happens outside of his control. Hebrews chapter 4, Hebrews 4.13 says, Hebrews 4.13, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. No creature is hidden from his sight. Everything is open and bare to the eyes of him we have to do. We are an open book to God. He sees and he knows everything there is to know about us. And that should, again, cause both fear and comfort. Fear and comfort. Verse 4, 
A soothing tongue is a tree of life, but perversion in it crushes the spirit. A soothing tongue, a soothing tongue, a tongue that has the soothing words of the gospel upon it. This is a tree of life, right? The tongue, the words that are coming out of it are like a a balm or an ointment that is used to soothe, right, the wounds of men, the wounds of sin. And the soothing tongue of the righteous is a tree of life. It is a tongue that is used by God to teach men about eternal life and how they can have their sins forgiven through Jesus Christ. And this is the way that our tongues should be. They should be soothing tongues that are used by God to teach men about the way of salvation. But when there is perversion in the tongue, it crushes the spirit. A perverted tongue that spews out lies instead of truth will crush the souls and spirits of men, crush them under their own sins because it's not showing them the way of salvation, but it is giving to them a vain hope, a vain confidence, and ultimately these sins will crush them down into hell. This is what happens when there is a perversion in the tongue. Verse 5, a fool rejects his father's discipline, but he who regards reproof is sensible. A fool rejects his father's discipline, right? One of the signs of a wicked and worthless man is that he does not listen to the discipline of his father. Now, this is true, generally speaking, even in the world, even amongst the unbelievers, unbelieving fathers, they do have some knowledge of truth and righteousness that is implanted on their heart and in their conscience. And many of the things that they're trying to instill in their children are for their benefit and are for their good. So if their children are foolish, they're not going to listen to their fathers, but even more so of Christian children. A Christian child who has a Christian father should listen to him, right? Should listen to him. And if he does not listen to that father's discipline, then he is a fool. Also, ultimately, we have to apply this spiritually. And who is our father spiritually? But God, and we are his children. And does he not discipline his own children? Of course he does. Well, if we don't listen to the discipline of God, then we are proving that God is not our father, but that we are wicked, worthless, that we are indeed foolish people. The one who regards reproof is sensible. He is a man of sense, of wisdom, of understanding, because he sees the proper authority of the father over him. He knows that his father has his good in mind, that his father has more wisdom than him, that what his father is telling him is good and right, and therefore he listens to it and he gains in wisdom. And this is the way that we ought to be. 1 Samuel 2, 1 Samuel 2, an example of a foolish sons. 1 Samuel 2, 22 to 25. 1 Samuel 2, 22 says, Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, Why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. 
Here, these sons, these two wicked sons of Eli, they would not listen to the reproof of their father. They were very foolish people, foolish sons, and ultimately they came under the judgment of God because of such things. Verse 6, great wealth is in the house of the righteous, but trouble is in the income of the wicked. Here, in the house of the righteous, there is great wealth. And this wealth has to be more than merely physical, monetary wealth. The great wealth that is in the house of the righteous is the spiritual riches, the spiritual wealth that they have through the knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the wealth that is in the house of the righteous. Also in their house is found the Holy Spirit of God because the Holy Spirit is dwelling inside of them. And this is what makes a man rich. He's rich in faith. He's rich in the blessings and favor of God. He's rich in the filling of the Holy Spirit of God. And this is what makes a man wealthy in God's sight. Great wealth is in the house of the righteous. A wealth that this present world does not know. The richest man in the world, if he's not a believer, does not possess the same wealth, the same riches that are possessed by the poorest of Christians. Because our riches are eternal riches, our spiritual riches that are found in Christ Jesus. But in the wicked, there is trouble in their income. Even the wealth that they have, their riches, their gold, their silver, their money, their possessions, there is great trouble in those things because the way they use the possessions given to them by God will be used on the day of judgment as a manifestation of their sin. And they will receive more judgment and more condemnation because of their wealth and the way that they have mismanaged it, the way they have squandered it and used it for their own sins. So even the wealth they have will bring trouble upon their own heads. It will testify against them. This is the way it is with the wicked. Verse 7, the lips of the wise spread knowledge. But the hearts of fools are not so. The lips of the wise spread knowledge, right? Because the word of God is on their heart and because it is in their mind, then it's going to be on their lips as well. I believe, therefore I spoke, is what the word of God says. Well, if we believe it, if we have the knowledge of the truth, then not only will it be in our heart and in our mind, it will also be on our lips. And we will spread this knowledge to other people as we are encouraging one another, instructing one another, talking to one another about the things of God, teaching and leading our family in the things of God, talking to strangers or whomever we can about the things of God, we are spreading the knowledge of Christ far and wide. But the hearts of fools are not so. Because their heart does not have true knowledge, but instead their heart is filled with lies, then their lips do not spread knowledge. Instead, their lips spread lies, right? Whatever is in the heart will come out of the mouth. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. If the heart is filled with the truth of the gospel, then that truth will manifest itself on the lips. If the heart is filled with lies, then those lies will come out of the lips as well, and they will spread their lies far and wide. Verse 8, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. Here, the wicked man, even whenever he is doing 
sacrifices, even when he is going through rituals. And here, these rituals may be true rituals. They may be the very rituals that have been established by God, that have been taught in the Word of God, such as the sacrifices of the Old Testament. Because here, Solomon is writing not to pagans and foreigners who are worshiping their false gods, though their sacrifices are certainly an abomination to the Lord, but he's writing to Israelites, to Jews, who have the true knowledge of God, who have the true temple, who know how to offer sacrifices according to the word of God. But if that person's heart is not right in the sight of God, if he does not have true faith, but he's just going through rituals just to appease God, to manipulate God, to get God to bless him and to give him money, right? If he's doing it for the wrong reasons with a wicked heart, is that sacrifice pleasing in the sight of God? Even if the sacrifice is a year-old male uh, from his flock, even if it is the best that he has to offer, even if in terms of the outward ritual, everything is in perfect conformity to what the Word of God says, if the man's heart is wicked, the very sacrifice, whatever he presents to God, is an abomination to the Lord. This is clearly taught in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain. God did not have regard for Cain or for his offering. Right? Whatever he offered was an abomination to the Lord because who was an abomination to the Lord? Cain was. If the person is an abomination, then whatever they offer God will also be an abomination to the Lord. And this is commonly the problem. Many times this is the problem. People will go to church. They'll even sing songs that may be true. They might even go through a service that in terms of the order of it is good and fine. They may even take the Lord's Supper. They may even undergo through the uh, ritual of baptism. But if the heart is not changed, if they're still dead in their trespasses and sins, then what benefit is it? Right? What value is it? Whatever they do for the Lord is an abomination to him. It's not good in his sight. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. The upright, when he prays, right? When the wicked man prays, it's an abomination. But when the upright man prays, God has delight in his prayer because it's coming from a heart of faith, a changed heart, a heart that is regenerated and filled with the Holy Spirit. This is like Abel. God had regard for Abel and for his offering. Because Abel was a delight to the Lord, then also whatever he offered to God was a delight to the Lord. His religious services were a delight to the Lord. Right? And this is because he himself was a delight to the Lord. First, according to God's purpose of election, God chose him. But then secondly, because God regenerated and changed him, and he was a righteous and a godly man by the power of God. And therefore, God had delight for who he was and for what he did. This is why God must change us, to make us acceptable in his sight, so that our worship of God is pleasing to him. Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah 1, 10 to 17. Isaiah 1, 10. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? 
I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity in the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Here, even though all of these rituals had been established by God through the prophet Moses, did God take regard to any of these things? He hated them because the people did not know and understand that God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Meaning that if there is not mercy, if there is not a changed heart in the person, then whatever sacrifices God has prescribed are useless. They are worthless. They do not please God. The heart is central. The heart of man must first be offered to God, and then our services are pleasing to his sight. And this is what Proverbs 15, verse 8 is teaching us. Next, verse 9. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves one who pursues righteousness. The way of the wicked, right? His life, the way that he lives, everything about him, both his person and his way, are an abomination to the Lord. Just as we read, his sacrifices are an abomination to the Lord. His mouth is an abomination to the Lord. Right? His mind is an abomination to the Lord. Everything about him is an abomination to the Lord because he himself is an abomination to God. But God loves the one who pursues righteousness. The one who pursues righteousness, God loves him not because he pursues righteousness. Right? It is not our pursuit of righteousness that gains God's love and approval to us. But rather, it is God's love for us that changes our hearts, that makes us into righteous men and women, and then as a result of God's work in us, we pursue righteousness. The pursuing of righteousness is a manifestation that God has loved us. God loves those who pursue it. And this is why Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. We ought to hunger and thirst for righteousness and see and know that if we do, God will fill us and it shows that God has great love for us. Verse 10, grievous punishment is for him who forsakes the way. He who hates reproof will die. Grievous punishment is for the one who forsakes the way, who turns aside from the path, who does not want to know the true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent, who does not want to know how to have his sins forgiven through Christ but rather who trusts in his own understanding, in his own knowledge. He turns away from the way. He hates the reproof of God found in the word of God. Well, he's going to die in his sins and will undergo grievous punishment. And what is the grievous punishment that awaits the one who forsakes the way? Eternity in hell. And would we say that that is a grievous punishment? That is a very severe and a very grievous 
punishment. So we don't want to undergo that. And the Bible is warning us of what lies ahead for those who reject the truth. 2 Peter 2, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. 2 Peter 2, 15 says, Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with a voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. They're speaking of these false teachers. They forsake the way they have gone astray. They go astray both in their doctrine, their teaching, but also in their morality, in the way that they live. They go astray in these ways, and as a result, there is destruction that is coming upon them. Verse 11, Sha'ol and Abaddon lie open before the Lord. How much more the hearts of men? Here, these two things, Sha'ol and Abaddon, which are places of judgment and punishment, right, for the wicked. These things lie open before the Lord. Now, are these things open to our eyes? Can we, in this present life, see Sha'ol and Abaddon? Are we able to perceive the people that are there, the souls of the wicked that are being tormented in those places, right? We can't see those things, but who does see them? Whose eyes are they are open to? Well, they are open to the Lord. So there are things that are not visible to us that are known to the Lord. Well, if these things are known to the Lord, then how much more the hearts of men? Our hearts are laid open and bare before the Lord. Yes, I cannot see into your heart, and you cannot see into my heart, but who can see into our hearts? The Lord can, right? He sees all things, and he knows what is there within our heart. And we ought to pray that God would make those things known to us as well, that he would reveal these things to us, and that God would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Job 26, verse 6. It says, Naked is Sheol before him, and Abaddon has no covering. There, again, these things are open and bare to God. He sees everything. Even the unseen world, those things invisible to us, are visible to the eyes of the Lord. Then Jeremiah 17, verses 9 to 10. 17, verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else, and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So can we deceive God? Can we, through hypocrisy, by doing things outwardly, but not having the inward reality, are we able to deceive and trick and bamboozle God? It's impossible for us to do so. We may be able to do that to other men, but we cannot do it to the Lord. So then, what should we be before God? Open, truthful, honest, sincere. Sincere with who we are in the sight of God, and that God would make known to us the true condition of our heart, that he would reveal even those secret things in our heart so that those things might be exposed to the gospel of Christ. Verse 12, a scoffer does not love one who reproves him. 
he will not go to the wise. The scoffer, right, the one who does not want to know the way of righteousness, he will not love when someone reproves him. If someone has a legitimate reproof and is bringing this up to the one who is a scoffer, who is a wicked man, he is not going to love that person. This is the opposite of the righteous man who says that his, the wounds of a friend are faithful to him. Right? He loves the wounds of a friend because they are benefit for his own soul. But the scoffer does not love the one that reproves him, and he will not go to the wise. He's not going to find other wise men or those who have wisdom and knowledge and understanding of the will of God. He's not going to seek their counsel. He's just going to look for people to tell him exactly what he wants to hear. He'll find the false teachers. Having tickling ears, they will not endure sound teaching, but they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. This is the way of a scoffer, and we should reject this way. Verse 13, a joyful heart makes a cheerful face, but when the heart is sad, the spirit is broken. Here, the inner and the outer are always in connection. When there's joy in the heart, the face is cheerful. It, you see it in the countenance of the man, the way that he appears, right? He's happy, he's joyful. This is obvious and plain. But when there is sadness in the heart, the spirit is broken. His demeanor, his spirit, he's downcast, he's sullen, right? It manifests itself outwardly in the way that he behaves, right? Whatever is going on on the inside is going to manifest itself on the outside, right? And this doesn't necessarily have to be good or bad, right? In terms of the sadness, there is legitimate sadness, a legitimate sorrows, that will manifest themselves outwardly, and we don't have to be false and pretentious and act like everything is always good and swell and fine all the time. Whenever we're going through a legitimate hardship and a sorrow, well, it should manifest itself, right? If a loved one dies, if your wife dies, you know, you shouldn't be smiling and happy because your wife is dead, I guess, unless you don't like her. But, you know, typically speaking, you're going to be sorrowful and sad. You're going to be downcast because of those things, and you should be downcast. Right, because of those things. Nehemiah chapter 2. This was the attitude or the response of Nehemiah whenever he found out about the deplorable condition of Jerusalem. He was sad, and it showed itself in his outward demeanor to the point that the king knew that he was sad. And he rightly interpreted the source of this sadness. Nehemiah 2 verse 1. And it came about in the month Nisan, in the twelfth month, uh, or in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Then I was very much afraid. So here, this sadness of heart came about from chapter 1. Whenever he, some brothers, uh, some Jews, had came to where he was at in the capital city there, and he inquired to them about the state of Jerusalem, and they told him about the great distress of the city, that the walls were broken down and the gates were burned with fire. 
and this caused him to be sad in his heart, rightfully so, and then this sadness of heart was manifesting itself in sadness of faith, face, so much so that the king recognized it, said, I know you're not sick, this has to be because of your heart. And this is how it is in this present world, right? In, in the way that we endure or the way that we experience both the joys and sorrows of life. Whenever there is joy, there is cheerfulness. Whenever there is sorrow, there is sadness. And this should also be true of us in terms of our spiritual life. Whenever there is the knowledge of our sin and what we have done against God, we should have sorrow over our sin. But whenever we understand the forgiveness of our sins, then there should be joy. Joy and sorrow, right? This is the way that we should be even in our Christian life. Verse 14. The mind of the intelligent seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. Here, the intelligent one seeks knowledge, right? The one who is wise and who wants more wisdom is going to seek knowledge, but the fool, he's just going to feed on folly. He's just going to find people who will go ahead and affirm him and build him up in his own foolishness and in those things that he already believes and knows. He doesn't have a true interest in understanding and knowing the will of God. Luke chapter 8, verse 18 Luke 8.18 says, Take care now how you listen, for whoever has, to him more shall be given, and whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. The one who has more will be given. The intelligent one will gain wisdom and knowledge. But the one who does not have, who is a fool, even when he encounters the truth, is going to be taken away from him. It's not going to benefit him or lead to any change in his life person. Verse 15, all the days of the afflicted are bad, but a cheerful heart has a continual feast. All the days of the afflicted are bad. Whenever we are under affliction, it seems that every day is a bad day. We cannot enjoy the pleasures of life, even the good things that God gives to us in this life. When we are afflicted, we don't find joy and comfort in food, in the presence of others, in those things that we typically have joy and comfort in because the reality of our affliction and the knowledge of it, it often consumes us so that every day is a bad day, right? It ruins the day, it ruins the atmosphere so that there's badness all of the day. But when there is a cheerful heart, there's a continual feast. When there is something good that happens to us that cheers our heart, then we have a continual feast. Every day is like a feast day filled with celebration, filled with joy, filled with goodness. Now, ultimately, this must be applied, though it is true in terms of the experiences of this life. Ultimately, it's true of our spiritual state. When a person is afflicted with sin, every day is a bad day because they're under the guilt of their sin. And if they die in that, then their entire eternity will be a bad day because they will be under the punishment of that sin. But whenever there is the forgiveness of sins, whenever we have that assurance to us, it brings cheer to the heart and we have a continual feast with the Lord. We are always filled with joy and happiness. Verse 16. 16 and 17 we'll take together. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and turmoil with it. Better is a dish of vegetables where love is 
than a fatted ox served with hatred. It's better to be poor and fear God than to be rich and have God as your enemy. Right? It's better to have a dish of vegetables in a house of love than to have the fatted ox in a house filled with hatred. It is better to have a simple, quiet, godly life, right? That is far greater, far more valuable than many riches when there is nothing but turmoil, misery, conflict, fighting in the home. And yet, what do most people believe? That riches, right, are the source of all happiness. That if they could have riches, right, then that they would be happy indeed. Right, that this is what they need to give them fulfillment, to give them joy and comfort and pleasure in this life. Many want riches above everything else. And yet here he's telling us there are things that are more valuable than riches. Right? What is the monetary value of sanity? What is the monetary value of harmony, of peace, of tranquility, right? of having a home without strife? without all of the stress and troubles that come with contention and conflict in the home, right? What value can you put upon that? What value can you put upon obedient children? What value can you put upon siblings that love one another instead of siblings that hate one another? What value is there with a husband and wife who get along and who actually enjoy being together, right? What is the monetary value that you can attach to these states of bliss and blessedness? That's what the prophet is teaching here. There are some things better than having a life of riches. Because if you have riches without peace in the home, if you have riches without the fear of God, well then, are you really better off than the poor man who does fear God? If you eat the fatted ox every day and you have your appetite uh, satiated in those ways, are you better off than the poor man who has vegetables? Right? And vegetables can be good as well. I mean, they're not as good as a fatted ox, but still, they can be good. But if he has his vegetables and peace in the home, he's far better than you who have your fatted ox and nothing but strife and turmoil in the home. Right? Wouldn't we rather live a simple, quiet, godly, dignified life where there is love, harmony between the husband and wife, between the parents and children, where there's happiness in the home, even if there is some measure of poverty or scarcity. But at least you're eating vegetables. You're not starving to death. You're not in misery in that way. Well, that's far better than having this, all of these riches and all the things associated with it, and there's nothing but constant conflict and turmoil in the home. And don't we see this manifested all the time in our society? That these rich people, they live in misery, right? They have miserable lives. The celebrities, they're married and divorced, how many times? Over and over and over again. And every time that happens, do you think that it's just a, a mutual, you know, where they all just come to an agreement? I hate you, you hate me. Let's just go our separate ways. Of course, it's never like that. It's always filled with strife, heartache, contention that leads up to that. And they have this ongoing, never-ending, turmoil conflict. Well, are they really better off? Then this poor man over here that no one knows about, who lives a very simple life, yet he has a wife who loves him. He has children who love him and care for him. They have harmony and peace 
in the home. They get along. They actually like being around each other. They're not constantly at each other's necks, right? Biting each other's heads off. That's the, the life that we should desire and what we should want to live. And what will a man pay at the end of his life? To be surrounded, you know, by his children, by his grandchildren, by people in the household of faith who love him and who care for him, right? What value can you place upon that versus some rich man who is a miser, who his children all hate him and they want nothing to do with him, who dies alone and by himself in some cold nursing home with no one around him because he neglected his family his entire life, all in his pursuit of riches. Is it worth it for him now when he doesn't have anyone there to comfort him and to love him on his dying bed? Well, of course not. So we need to have a proper perspective of these things. And we need to give proper value to the things that God gives value to. And it's better to live a simple, quiet, Christian life than to have access to all of the riches and all the comforts and pleasures that those things afford to us in this world, and yet to be miserable in our sin and to have people who hate us. So let's then desire the things that God calls for us to desire, and that is this simple, quiet, contented Christian life. Better is a plate of dishes where there is love than a fatted ox served with hatred. Let us commit ourselves to that way. Well, let's pray, and then after that, we will be dismissed. And I'm going to ask, Bruce, would you mind praying and dismissing us today?